Children's Church. And uh, as they're gone, I have a, um, an announcement. It was in the bulletin last week, but uh, a little more information. Uh, one of the founding members of this church, one of the pillars of this church in its early days, uh, Paul Redeen, passed away. And um, it was uh, sudden. It was unexpected. His wife was in Las Vegas for some surgery. And uh, he was in the hospital, had an apparent heart attack, and, and died. And um, it's very personal to me because Paul was such a big influence um, in my early life in this church. And so it's, it's tragic that we've lost him, uh, even as joyful as it is to know where he is right now, that he is enjoying his Savior. Um, for those of you who knew Paul and are interested in available, Thursday the 9th, at 1230, his funeral will be at the Bakersfield National Cemetery. And there's going to be an honor guard to present honors, and then they've asked me to do the gravesite um, uh, ceremony, the internment. And uh, then after that, they haven't got it all worked out, but after that, there's going to be a reception, I think, in Quartz Hill uh, to spend some time with the family and, and uh, share with him. So um, if you knew Paul, um, he's, uh, he was a great man and, and uh, a Tremendous influence. Uh, Bob Kempel has been has forwarded me some of the testimonials from some of the NASA engineers that he worked with, and the engineers said the same thing the Christians say. He was a great man. He was a mentor. He was wise. He was understanding, and so uh, he, he is he is sorely missed. Um, even though I didn't get to pastor him, <laughs> he wasn't able to return to this church because he had spent so many years here with his wife Jean, and when she passed away, it was just too hard for him to sit in this facility with these people in worship. And I'm, I'm so grieved because I was longing to be with him, to serve with him again, but um, the Lord had other plans. So I just wanted to make that, uh, uh, that information available to you all. And so with that, let's open in prayer, and then we'll take a look at God's Word. Lord, you indeed do move at times in very mysterious ways. We can't understand exactly what it is that you're up to at any given point. But Lord, you have given us the gift of time and experience so that over a period of time we can look back and see and begin to understand what it is that you were doing at that point. And so, Lord, thank you for the gift of time. And Lord, as we now turn to your word and we hear about Paul's conversion, we long to understand what it is that, um, that you did in Paul's life, what you're doing in our life. And uh, Lord, how we may grab a hold of this as a promise of Jesus and, uh, and see the, the fulfillment in our own lives. Uh, Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word? Holy Spirit, we need you to help us understand, to pay attention, to get what you're trying to tell us. And so would you apply it to our minds and hearts? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So I think the key in all of this is what Ananias said to Paul. He said, you're going to be a witness to what you've seen and heard. And really, isn't that what this is about, what Paul has seen and heard? Um, this is the power of a testimony, telling somebody how you came to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's got it's great, great power. And we're going to learn a lot about that process of sharing your testimony, what it means, what it looks like, by looking at how Paul does it. Um, so what we're going to see this morning is who he is, who Paul is, uh, what he saw, and then where he was sent. And we'll, we'll see how the, um, the power of this works. Now, before I dig into this, I just want to give you kind of an overview of the, the outline of the thing, what the, the thrust of it. The way Luke has written this is just like I said, who he is, what he saw, and where he went, or where he was sent. It's this flow. And so he starts with who he is because he's trying to connect with that crowd that, that wanted to execute him. 
He tells him who he is. He, he basically looks at the crowd who's trying to stone him and says, I'm one of you. He tries to make this personal connection with them, and then he very slowly and carefully takes them through his process. Why am I who I am now? Well, you have to see and understand what I saw. And so he's trying to draw them along with him, trying to lead them along. And so that's kind of the flow of the thing. And so that's what it's going to look like as we go through this, is, is Paul is going to try to hook us into who he is, take us to that point where he experiences the risen Christ, and then see the application of it, what, what falls out of that. So that's kind of the, the, the lay of the land. Let's work through this, and then we'll, at the end we'll go through and, and see what the application, how that really affects us. So if you remember last week, Paul is in the temple completing a, a vow, and some Jews from Ephesus, from Asia, see him, and they're really mad, and they start yelling, help, he brought a Greek into the temple. Um, he didn't. <laughs> he hadn't. And when they arrest him and drag him out of the temple, the only person they drag out is him. They don't drag any Greeks out. But they stirred up the crowd, and now he's outside the temple. He's probably in the court of the Gentiles, maybe even outside that, and they're starting to beat him up. Well, just off the court of the Gentiles is this thing called the, the, uh, the Castle of Antonia. It was built by Herod the Great, and it has two staircases that come down to the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the Romans put their, their guard. So if there was any problems in the temple, they could just charge right in, and, and that's exactly what happens. Is the, the tribune comes charging down the stairs with his men, and they arrest Paul because he's the one being beaten. So obviously he's the guy who's causing trouble. <laughs> he was being beaten, but that's the Roman way is you must be the one that's causing the problem. So what we saw last week is they grab him, and they're taking him back to the, the barracks to interrogate him because the crowd is so confused they can't get a straight answer out of him. What's this guy done? So they said, well, we'll just take him back to the barracks and we'll, we'll execute, or uh, not execute, uh, examine him there. And so what Luke said last week is, is the crowd is so intense that the, the soldiers had to pick him up and carry him up the stairs. That's how violent this all is. So that's where we left him was Paul had just gotten taken out of that, that fray and now he gets to the top of the stairs. And as he's about to go into the barracks, he turns to the tribune and he says, may I say something to you? And that freezes, that makes the tribune stop because he's not who he thought he was. He thought this was somebody else. And so when he addresses him, actually the Greek that Paul uses here is very polished, very appropriate, very high Greek for a way to talk to somebody. It's not the kind of Greek that the normal rabble-rouser would be using. And that's what makes the tribune stop and go, wait, what? And so the tribune says, do you know Greek? He wasn't expecting that out of this person. He had assumed that Paul was somebody else, just like the crowd assumed that Paul was somebody else. So he says, are you not the Egyptian? That, that's a question that is not asking a question. It is expecting a positive response. Aren't you? Yeah, you are, aren't you? Aren't you the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now, the Egyptian who led the people out into the wilderness is a well-known, it's a documented historical event. And the theory is it happened about three or four years before this. So it's really fresh. What happened was there was this Egyptian Jew who'd come up into Jerusalem, or into uh, Judea, and started preaching as kind of he was the Messiah. He didn't say he was the Messiah, but kind of preaching in those ways. And he, grew, he drew a, a group of people to himself. And he led them out into the wilderness, and he said what they were going to do is they were going to turn and march on Jerusalem. And as they drew near to Jerusalem, he was going to say something or do something, and the walls of Jerusalem would fall. 
And that would prove that he was, he was this messianic kind of person. Well, the Romans don't like when walls fall and people march, and so they met him at the Mount of Olives and attacked. Killed about 200, arrested about 200, and this Egyptian Jew disappeared. Poof, gone. Nobody's seen him since. So the tribune is expecting this guy to come back. And so when there's this big kerfuffle in the, um, that's a technical term there, kerfuffle, yeah. Um, when there's this big uh, um, tumult, how's that? That's better. That's more preachy, right? Tumult? When there's this big tumult in the, in the temple courts, he assumes that must be the Egyptian return, so we better arrest this guy. So when Paul turns and talks to him in this polished, refined Greek, it causes him to stop. Wait, aren't you that guy? And Paul says, I am a Jew from the from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, no mean city, no little town. This is, a, this is an important place. There were a lot of universities in, in uh, Tarsus. And so for Paul to be a, a Jew from that town, that explains why his, his Greek was so polished, is he'd been well-educated. He's not an ordinary rabble-rouser. He's somebody important. And so he, he announces who he is. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Um, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Isn't that so, Paul? Do you remember what happened at Ephesus when there was a big riot? Demetrius causes this big riot to happen, and they go rushing into the temple shouting and screaming. And when Paul gets word of it, he turns and he goes, I'm going in there. And his disciples, his friends grab him and say, no, please don't. The Asiarchs, the, the ruling folks said, please, Paul, don't do this. Paul never shied away from a fight. So when the crowd gets ready to kill him, he's probably bloodied and beaten at this point because it's not like they just kind of you know, smacked him on the face or something. They were trying to kill him when the, when the Romans showed up. And so he is not daunted by that. He's not afraid of that. He turns and he says, would you allow me to speak to the people, please? And the tribune grants it. He says, okay. And so Paul, it says, he's standing on the steps. So he's standing over top of him, looking down, and he motions with his hand. Is it just like magic spell to make a quiet a crowd get quiet? Um, the, 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 the idea of motioning with the hand before speaking happens a couple of times in Acts. What he probably did was there was a way that the, the traveling philosophers, the, the lecturers, would stand on a corner and they would make a motion. We don't even know what it was. I'm just making this up. Does that look kind of like I'm important about to say something important? They would wave their hand, and, and it would draw people's attention. they go, oh, this, this man is about to speak, and he claims to be an expert, so let's listen. So it's probably something along those lines. So the crowd is, is, is you know, yelling and screaming, and all of a sudden they see him stop and turn to address him instead of turning and running. And he's going to address him like an orator. And so they're like, what? Who is this guy? Stop. So it just calms the crowd. They all kind of settle. And there was a great hush. It, took, it probably took a little bit. I mean, Luke is kind of telling the story quick. He may have stood there and waved for a good couple of minutes before it got everybody's attention. But as they, the, the attention spreads, the crowd settles. There was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language. A um, couple of things. When it says the Hebrew language, it, it, it's a Hebrew dialect. It was probably Aramaic, most likely. And the reason we say that is because you know what a transliteration is? It's when you take a word that's said in one language and you don't translate it into the meaning, but you just take the, the sounds and bring it into another language. For example, amen. We say amen all the time. That is a transliteration from the Greek amin, or from the Hebrew amin into the Greek, and then we pick it up and bring it into English. Um, it, it, we don't translate the word. It means uh, uh, something along the lines of absolutely so or something like that or let it be so or something along those lines. So we translate it 
not by saying those words, but by bringing that word in the transliteration. That's what that means. Most of the transliterations, especially in the Gospel of John, are all Aramaic. Rabboni. Do you remember when, when uh, Mary Magdalene said Rabboni? It says that was Aramaic for teacher. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he calls out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's probably Aramaic was the, way, the language that they spoke. Um, that is a dialect of Hebrew. It is like Hebrew in many ways. So that's the idea. But there's a couple of, but the word in, in the Bible is Hebrew. There's a handful of modern translations that just skip that and say he spoke to him in Aramaic. So he spoke to him in Aramaic, but he spoke to him in Hebrew, okay? Hope I cleared that up for you. The interesting thing is that he uses that language. He, he's spoken in Greek, hasn't he? He's spoken clearly in Greek, and now he turns and he speaks in another language. Paul was a smart guy. He was not only smart because he could learn multiple languages, something I've never been able to do, but he also was smart because he knew this was going to connect him to his crowd. These are Jews in the temple courts. They are zealous for their God because they chased him out. They threw him out of the temple. And so he speaks in a language that will connect them, that will grab them, that will get their attention. And so once they hear Hebrew, once they start hear him start speaking in their own language, they all stop. Now, wait a minute. What? Who is this guy? And so he begins to speak. What Paul tells us now in chapter 22 is he gives us his testimony. He explains to them how he came to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so that's where he goes next is he starts by saying brothers and fathers. It's the same thing that Stephen said when Stephen was brought up on charges in, in Defend Yourself. He started with brothers and fathers. Again, not only does the language connect Paul to these people, but this is now familial terms. He's saying, you are my family. You're my brothers. You older men, you're my fathers. I'm one of you. So he's trying to begin to draw them in. If you can walk this path with me, maybe you can wind up where I am at the end. Um, there's some thought that the term fathers might refer to the, the leaders in Israel at the time, that the, the chief priests and those folks were there. I, and I don't think it's here or there. I think the familiar aspect of it, the, the sounding like he's talking to his family, is more important. He says, hear my defense. The defense, the word defense there is apologia, my apology. Now, today we say apology as in, oh, I'm sorry I stepped on your, your toe, let me apologize. I'm, said, I'm sorry I said something funny about your hair, even though you know, it looks weird, but let me apologize. That's not what apologia means. Apologia was a defense. When you went into a court and you were going to offer a defense and explain what happened, you would offer your apology. And so that's what Paul is doing, is he's saying, let me offer my apology. Let me offer my defense to you. And that's what he wants to do. So they, they become quiet and they listen. He says again, he announces who he is. I am a Jew. I'm one of you. I am of your tribe. I'm not some interloper. I'm not the Greek you thought was in the temple. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, an important Greek city, but I was brought up in this city. I was brought up here in Jerusalem, and I, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. We met Gamaliel, didn't we? When, when um, Peter was arrested, they said, you guys, if this is from God, don't oppose it. You can't oppose it. But if it isn't from God, it's going to fail anyway. So he was a wise man, revered, looked up to. 
He had probably died about five years before this. Or no, I think it was like three years, something like that. Recently, he had passed away. So this giant theological figure, this giant national figure has passed away. And Paul says, I was brought up in Tarsus, but I, I was brought up here under Gamaliel. He's the one who taught me. So look, I'm no theological lightweight, you guys. I'm not easily led astray by this stuff. I was trained by the master himself. And I wasn't just trained in some, some cursory stuff. I was brought up in the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So you folks who want to kill me because you think I brought a Greek in, I'm with you. I was there. I was that zealous. He said, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Do you notice what Paul just said to them? He doesn't say, you guys are worshiping false gods. You don't understand God. You don't understand the Trinity. You're worshiping a false god. He doesn't say that. He says, I was zealous for God just the same way that you are. Not I was, I was mislead, misled or misunderstood. So there is this aspect of a zealousness for God that can be incomplete. Because he, he had the zeal for God. He was, he was all about the law, all about those things, but he didn't believe Jesus Christ. And you can't be zealous for God and omit Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. So he had this incomplete understanding, and he's, that's what he's saying, just like all of you. I was in that same place that you are right now. So where he gets that idea of being zealous for the law, this comes up again. He mentions it at the beginning of Romans chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Talking about his people. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What are they upset about Paul doing? You're preaching against the traditions of our, our fathers. You're preaching against the law. You're preaching against this house. He says they have a zeal for the, for the Lord, but not according to knowledge. Because if they understood, then they would look to Jesus and say, He's the fulfillment of it. He's the end of it. He's, he's where our hope is instead of all these laws. So he doesn't cast them off. He doesn't say, you people are worshiping false gods or you know, anything like that. He identifies with them. He says, I was right there with you. I simply didn't understand. Just like you don't. That's the implication. So here's the problem with having a zeal for God and an incomplete picture of him. It can be a dangerous thing. It can be dangerous to you because you might charge off after a God who doesn't exist, seeking to please a God who doesn't like what you're doing, instead of going for the true and the living God. It can also be dangerous because some people get so zealous for it, they're going to attack anybody who doesn't agree with them. And that's what happened here. Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death. Now, we hadn't heard about Paul killing anybody back in Acts chapter 9. But apparently he either had killed somebody or really intended to. He was really angry about this way, this, this new way of walking with God. I was pursue, uh, persecuted them to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As a high priest, the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus 
to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. Do you see, folks, you're trying to stone me today because you think I snuck a Greek into the, the temple? I was doing the exact same thing you were, folks. I was going after people I thought were heretics. I had letters from the high ups, not a mob like you guys. I had letters, and I was going to arrest people. I am with you. I understand where you're at. So then he says, that's who he was. Now we get to see what he saw. What did he run into? He says, as I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus, and about noon, a great light suddenly shone around me. And, and when we looked at that in chapter 9, I said, you know, there was no horse involved, right? There's still no horse involved. So the picture of Paul being thrown to the ground off a horse is still not right. <laughs> it's a, but it's okay. It doesn't really matter. What Paul does is he explains his experience with the risen Christ. He wants them to see, look, I didn't do this because suddenly I was convinced they were right. I had to have my life interrupted I had to have my road to Damascus cut off. It was a big deal that I turned. It wasn't because I just decided I'd be friendly one day. It wasn't because somebody convinced me of some lie. I had a personal encounter with the living Christ. And so he retells the story of his encounter with Jesus. Now, if you compare this with the way it happened in, in, uh, in chapter, I think it's chapter 8 or 9, you'll notice there's some differences. And you know what's really fascinating is Luke wrote both of them. So it's not like he got them wrong. What happens is when you're telling your story, when you're telling your experience with Jesus, sometimes you'll tell it different ways because you're paying attention to the audience in front of you. You're not a tape recorder that you just hit play and here's my, here's my speech and I give it every time the same way to every person. That's what Paul is doing is he's drawing out different details for the crowd that's in front of him. Luke drew out different details and omitted different details because he was writing to us, telling the story. So now we get a slightly different take. It's the same story. It's not like Paul says, you know, I was flying on a jet plane and, and a stewardess witnessed to me or something. It's the exact same story. There's just a little bit of different detail in it. So he, he explains his story, how he was blinded, how he went into Damascus, how Ananias came to him. And when he gets to the story of Ananias, he gives us a slightly different take on Ananias than Luke did in the original telling of it. He points out Ananias is a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He came to me and he stood and he said. So what Paul is saying is, look, not only was I, even in my, even in my moment of blindness when I was being turned around, the Jews still received me. I'm still one of you. This Jewish man came to me. So Ananias, he speaks of in a, in a very positive light. And Ananias gives him his message. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the voice from his mouth. To know, to see, to hear. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's the announcement to him. This is why did Jesus save Paul? For that reason. And he says, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Um, I think we talked about it when we did, covered the original telling of the story. What does it mean, rise and wa uh, be baptized and wash away your sins? Is it baptism that takes your sins away? I think that whole thing is modified by calling on his name. It is calling on his name that does that. The baptism is part of it, but it's not this is the moment where we're going to pick you up and wash your sins off, like dirt from your body or something. So got that out of the way. Why is he telling it different now? What's going on with this? Well, 
a number of years ago, when we were first getting into missions in this church, short-term missions trips, um, on the I think it was the second trip I went to Burma. While we were getting or while we were going, somebody told me about this book called Filipino Religious Consciousness by Melba Maggie, and it's um, I was looking through it yesterday. It's a little technical, but one of the things that that Melba brings up in the book is she said in in the Philippines they are nominally Roman Catholic. That is the kind of the, the standard religion of the island. But she said, if you dig slightly underneath that surface, what you find out is their motivations, their drives, their fears, their desires are still animist. And what animism means is there's a spirit behind everything, and you got to appease this spirit to have this happen, and, and you're trying to control nature through all of these different spirits. So she said there's a patina of Roman Catholicism, but right underneath it is a strong bedrock of, Buddhism, of uh, animism. And so I found that really interesting. So when we were in Myanmar, that's the other name for Burma, when we were in Burma, we had been sharing our testimony and sharing the gospel with people, and I thought, I'm going to try this a little different. Burma is nominally Buddhist. There's giant Buddhist temples all over the place. You look around and you see just a jungle and these gold spires sticking up. In the middle of the, the main town is the Shui de Gong, this big, huge Buddhist temple. So they are nominally Buddhist. I wonder if underneath all of that, if they are animist. And so when it came my turn to share my testimony, I told my testimony. I didn't leave one bit of the gospel out. But what I said was, before I became a Christian, my friends controlled me. If, if they said this was a cool thing and I missed out, that was where I was heading. I wanted to be with the cool kids. I wanted to be with whatever was happening, the most important thing at the time. And in that way, they would control me. They would tell me this was a cool thing to do. This was an important thing to do. And they led me around. When I came to Jesus, he set me free from all of that. He, he took my sin away. He, he lifted me out of that, and he set me on my feet in a way that I could be sure of myself. And I might be imagining it. I don't think I am. I was standing on a platform, and the room was filled with people sitting on the floor, and I thought I saw most of them lean forward as I was telling the story of how my friends had power over me, and Jesus broke that power. So when he tells the gospel... Now he's telling the gospel in a way that will connect him with his Jewish listeners. He doesn't just announce, here's the bare minimum facts. Instead, he's trying to communicate in a way that says, come with me, hear this. So I'm telling my story differently because I want you to connect with it. I want you to, to lock into what I'm saying. I want you, Jews, to come along with me on this journey. And they're with him so far, aren't they? They haven't thrown stones at him again. He's mentioned the risen Jesus Christ has come and talked to him. He referred to him in messianic terms, the righteous one. If you look in your Bible, you notice that's capital R, capital O. That's a messianic term. And so far the crowd, we don't know what is actually going on in the crowd, but they haven't, they haven't interrupted yet, have they? He has drawn them along. He has taken them to this point, explaining his conversion story, and they're listening and they're going, wow. That's interesting. That's something. And so he, he brings them to this point. He wants them to see and to understand who this is. He did it by engaging with them, by locking in with them and saying, now taking their hand and saying, now walk with me. Come along on my journey and see what's happened. I'm not so different from you. So that's where he takes them, takes them to his conversion story. And then he says, 
When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. It, it, can you think of a more Jewish thing to do than return to Jerusalem, pray in a temple? He is continuing to say, look, I didn't just throw everything away. I, I maintained the, the traditions of my fathers. When I came back to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. This is something that wasn't reported before. Um, it just mentioned that he came to Jerusalem and he left. Here's what happens. He says, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste to get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, standing by, approved and watched over their garments of those who killed him. He is again bringing that back to, Lord, this is who I was. I was one of them. I was a violent persecutor. Surely they'll hear that about me. They'll understand. But Jesus says, no, they're not going to accept that testimony. And this is when they get upset and start screaming and hollering. Not yet. They're probably going, yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, we, we wouldn't have listened to him. He, he was a turnabout. He's a traitor. And so this is what sets them off finally. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Boom. Now the nuclear bomb goes off. The Gentiles, isn't that what they were upset about to begin with? You brought a, Jew, you brought a Greek into the temple. You've been, you've been hanging around with Gentiles. You're telling people not to follow the, the traditions of our fathers. The bomb goes off, and that's when the crowd loses it again. So Paul didn't actually succeed necessarily in bringing them to where he wanted them to be. But he got them right up there, didn't he? He got them past the Jesus is the Messiah. He got them past Jesus is raised. And he did it not by, set, not by putting up a wall and lobbing bricks over going, here's the gospel, let me tie it to a brick and lob it at you. He did it by saying, I'm one of you. We're the same. I'm not some freak of nature. I, I'm one of you people. I was more one of you people than some of you are. So would you travel this journey with me? Would you, would you take these steps? So I think the picture that Luke is painting for us, if, if the book of Acts is about disciples making disciples, if he's showing us what it means to be a disciple, we're looking to Paul and saying, how did you do this? Paul was a one of a kind, right? Who else is standing here with him doing this? Is anybody else standing with him? No, this was a unique calling for Paul. But what Paul did is something that we can learn from, even if we don't mirror exactly the steps. His approach of saying, I'm one of you, I had an experience, would you come along with me, is a great and a healthy way to do it. So when we're out sharing the gospel, when we're sharing our life with people, we don't necessarily have to lob bricks. What we can do is share our life, share our experience. Do you have fears? So do I. But I experience them now with hope. Do you have self-esteem issues? So do I. But Jesus is showing me to esteem others as more important than myself. Are you proud? So am I. But meeting Jesus is leading me into humility. Are you selfish? So am I. But God's generosity to me in Christ is leading me to let go. It's not, I've got it all figured out. You don't. And if you would just get around to being like me, you'd be much better off. It is, I'm with you, brother. 
I am with you. I'm made out of the same clay that you are. I have the same struggles, but the difference is I have hope. I have Jesus. I have something else. And so when we let Jesus lead us like this, when we let him inform and affect our life like this, we're, we're becoming the humanity that Jesus or that God had always intended us to be. But not yet. Did you notice that when you got saved, you weren't instantly transmogrified into a glorified body? You, you, you got saved and you knew something was different inside, but you look and it's like, hey, it's the same old flesh bones. Did you notice when you got saved, you didn't have perfect and complete understanding of every mystery of the universe? As a matter of fact, you probably didn't even understand the Bible that well, and you spent years now learning more of it. When, when you got saved, you weren't suddenly burst into flames of glory like you will be in the resurrection. So what's up with that? Why is it that God saves us? And I've said this before, we're only half saved now. Our spirit's been made new, but this stuff, this flesh and bone is still the same old junk we've been carrying around for a while. Why? Why did he leave us in this intermediate state? Well, I think the picture is if we look to Jesus, what we'll see is he did it so that we could win the more people. He did it. He left us this way so that we could connect with those who are still like that. So I've, I've often wondered, Lord, why is it? Why is it the perfect answer to how the gospel will spread around the world, how we will gather in the full number of the Gentiles so that all Israel might be saved? Why was that, to use a bunch of sinful people who are, make mistakes and put their foot in their mouth, and why would you do it that way? And the safe answer is because it brings God the most glory, which is true. But I think there's a little more nuance to it. I think if we follow Paul on this, what we'll see is God did this. God himself stepped into this. Listen to this from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. He has to tell them to, in humility, count others as more important than themselves because they won't naturally do it. And he's speaking to Christians. So he says, esteem others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can have this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to God with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Do you see what Jesus did, what God did? Is he didn't say, here's the laws, follow it. He humbled himself taking on the form of man. He said, he came down to our level. And he said, now let me show you the way out of this mess. Taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name may bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue may confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humility, his stepping down, his emptying himself, his adding to infinity, one. What's infinity plus one, math majors? Still infinity. So his infinite perfectness, his, his divinity, who he was, he adds to it human nature. And it doesn't diminish his, his, his glory at all, his, his divinity. 
He adds that to himself so that he could come down here and be with us. And when he pronounced the gospel, we could hear it from our level. Jesus is the model for what Paul is doing here, saying, I'm one of you. Jesus is the model for us when we're sharing our faith. And you don't have to have all the right answers in this great apologetic course material. You can just say, here's what happened to me. Like I did in Burma. You know, my friends really controlled me. They, they would tell me that this was the fun thing to do, and I'd go chasing after it. They'd tell me that cool people wear these shoes, and I'd go buy those shoes. They'd tell me that this was the best music, and I'd go listen to that music. But the Lord has set me free. And people will connect on that level and go, yeah, you know, I keep chasing cool too, and it keeps eluding me. I keep chasing popularity, and it's just beyond my grasp. I know that feeling. What did you find? But you do it by joining with them, by coming in. And that's what Jesus did. That's what the, the point of Philippians is. He's saying, that's what Jesus has done. And so let's take that the next step. Then why does he leave us in this messed up state until he returns? I mentioned my friend Paul Redeen died. He suffered physical death. Death is a result of sin. Was Paul set free from sin? We sang it. He has liberated us by the cross. Why then do we still die? There's, there are people in this church who are still suffering from sickness, who've got colds. I had a bad back this week. I was like, like on the couch with my, my back just messed up for no good reason. Why do, I, why do I have a bad back? Haven't I been set free from sin by Jesus Christ, by his blood and resurrection? Why then do I still suffer? Why does God leave us in this halfway point between the glory of the resurrection and the deliverance from sin and salvation. I think he does it for a number of reasons. And I think one that we see here is so that we can connect with those who are still under the bondage of sin and say, such was one of I, such was I. Would you come with me? Let me tell you my story. Walk with me on my journey. This is what happened to me. Not in triumphalism and I'm so smart and you're not. In humility, that's how Paul approached it. He said, even when he had been converted, he said, I went into the temple and prayed. I was still trying to do the things that I was supposed to be doing. That's the beauty of this. That's the, the glory of this. Jesus did this on purpose. This is all of my Calvinism. God does stuff on purpose. That's it. All of my Calvinism summed up into one. God has left us in this intermediate state. He has entrusted the entirety of the gospel. The only way it will go out is when we share it. That is the primary means by which he's gonna have the gospel go around the world, and he left it in the hands of losers like us so that we can connect with losers like them. That's the point. I think that's why Paul does the, the apologetics the way he does. Now, the, the end of this is not pretty, is it? Away with him. Rid, him, rid the earth of this fellow. It's a healthy reminder, and it is also very humbling to say, you know, sometimes this doesn't work. Sometimes I do everything perfect, and it still doesn't connect. But it gives us hope to say, and therefore I'm going to do it again. One more time. There's one more person who hasn't heard. One more chance to connect with somebody. And so next week we'll pick up on verse 22 again and move forward. But I just I thought it was appropriate to have that as kind of the end cap to this is a little slap of reality is we have a hope in Jesus Christ. We have a story to tell. And for some people it will connect and for some people it just won't make any kind of sense. 
But God's doing that on purpose. And he's using us on purpose. So I think I find it liberating personally to go, you know what? I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to have every right answer. I don't have to have every excuse. I don't have to have every you know, great quip that I can throw out. I just have to be who I am because Jesus has made me who I am. And in the end, I will be glorified. In the end, I will be set free from sin and death and hell. In the end, I will see him as he is and be transformed into his likeness. But before then, I got wrinkles and gray hair and bad back. But I have a story to tell. And so next week, we get to the rest of the story. We'll follow Paul on the rest. And again, he's going to bring this up again. He's going to tell his, his uh, conversion story again. So we'll get another shot at this, and we'll hear him one more time. I think Luke keeps recording it because one of the problems with disciples is they also have bad memories. <laughs> and we tend to forget this stuff. So thank God that he repeats himself. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the work that you have done in our lives. Not around our lives, not instead of our lives, not replacing our lives, but Lord, you've come in and you've worked in our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for emptying yourself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the, in the form of man and suffering and dying on a cross to cancel the debt of our sin, to ascend into heaven and to send to us the promised Holy Spirit. And Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you for dwelling in, in temples that are made of crumbling clay. Thank you for accomplishing things in and through us. And Lord, would you help us with our story as we share with others where we were, what we've seen, and now where we're going. Lord, be glorified in your church, we pray. Amen.